Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to a bonus episode of the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time bringing you on the day reaction from Byline TV to Dominic Cummings' scathing attack on his former colleagues at two parliamentary hearings. The Prime Minister's former chief advisor told MPs that tens of thousands of people had died unnecessarily because of the government's mishandling of the pandemic and that Boris Johnson was unfit to lead the country. Older people, he said, were discharged from hospital into care homes without being tested for the virus, allowing it to spread. He also said that Health Secretary Matt Hancock should have been sacked for repeatedly lying. Cummings' assault supports the criticisms of Johnson and the government made in the Byline Times and on this podcast over many months. What you're going to hear is analysis with Byline Times co-founder Peter Jukes, editor Hadeep Matharu, chief politics and investigations reporter Sam Bright and Labour MP Dawn Butler. You can see much more like this at byline.tv and support its work and get additional content by going to patreon.com slash byline tv. That's patreon.com slash byline tv. First up, Peter Jukes. Now, today has been a momentous day for myself, at least in Parliament. We had seven hours of testimony from somebody at the heart of number 10 for over a year, Dominic Cummings. And I think rarely, at least in my long memory have I ever seen the government quite so eviscerated and opened up its workings, especially around the coronavirus crisis. In a minute, we hope to be joined by Dawn French MP. Dawn Butler. Dawn Butler. Not the comedian, everyone. Don't worry. She doesn't know anything about coming, I would suspect. Dawn Butler MP. Who was on the front seat of the comedy duo with Lenny Head. No, it was at the front seat of the committee hearing, but I think she's stuck in traffic, so that's why things are a little bit chaotic. <laughs> but before we open up everything to a forensic examination, because Byline Times was one of the few media organisations which got a favourable mention during the inquiry. So we'll be looking at quite what Dominic Cummins has exposed, what do we think of his evidence, do we trust him, what was new, what was left unsaid. But first, just to remind us all, Let's have a look at some of those clips from the early part of his evidence and what quite he was saying about Boris Johnson and his catastrophic coronavirus response. The, the basic thought was that um, in, in February, the Prime Minister regarded this as um, just a, a scare story. He, he, regarded, he d- described it as the new swine flu. Did you tell him it wasn't? C- certainly. But the view of various officials inside Number 10 was um, if we have the Prime Minister chairing Cobra meetings and he just tells everyone it's swine flu, don't worry about it, I'm going to get Chris Whitty to inject me live on TV with coronavirus so everyone realises it's nothing to be frightened of. When the public needed us most, the government failed. And I'd like to say to all the families of those who, uh, who died unnecessarily how sorry I am for the mistakes that were made and for my own mistakes at that. The second most powerful official in the country, Helen McNamara, is the Deputy Cabinet Secretary. She walked into the office while we're looking at this whiteboard. She says, I've just been talking to the official, Mark Sweeney, who is in charge of coordinating with the Department for Health. He said, quote, I've been told for years that there is a whole plan for this. There is no plan. We're in huge trouble. 
I've come through here to the Tallamacamora said, I've come through here to the Prime Minister's office to tell you all, quote, I think we are absolutely fucked. I think this country is heading for a disaster. I think we're going to kill thousands of people. As soon as I've been told this, I've come through to see you. It seems from the conversation that you're having that that's correct. And I said, I think you're right. I think it is a disaster. Many senior people um, performed far, far disastrously below the standards which the country has a right to expect. I think that the Secretary of State for Health is certainly one of those people. I said repeatedly to the Prime Minister that he should be fired. In, in the summer, he said that everyone who needed treatment who, uh, got the treatment that they required. He knew that that was a lie because he'd been briefed by the Chief Scientific Advisor and the Chief Medical Officer himself about the first peak, and we were told explicitly people did not get the treatment that they deserved. Many people were left to die in horrific circumstances. Is that the basis of your assertion? Are there other pieces? Of, is that the basis of your assertion, or are there other um, pieces of evidence that you base that, that charge on? Just before the Prime Minister and I were diagnosed with having COVID ourselves, the Secretary of State for Health told us in the Cabinet room, everything is fine on PPE. We've got it all covered, etc., etc. When I came back, almost the first meeting I had in the Cabinet room was about the disaster over, over PPE and how we were actually completely sure that hospitals all over the country were running out. Secretary of State said in that meeting, this is the fault of Simon Stevens, it's the fault of the Chancellor of the Exchequer, it's not my fault, they've blocked approvals on all sorts of things. I said to the Cabinet Secretary, please investigate this and find out if it's true. The Cabinet Secretary came back to me and said, it's completely untrue. I have lost confidence in the Secretary of State's honesty in these meetings. The Cabinet and Secretary said the that. The Cabinet Secretary said that to me, and the Cabinet Secretary said that to, 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 to the Prime Minister. Pubs and restaurants were not closed. Yep. Mass sports events were not stopped. Did you advise that we should be going further at that point, or did you go along with that um, softer version of the lockdown? So can, I, can, I, can I backtrack? Because I think you, you, the, the, we need to understand the, the, the crucial period between the Thursday the 12th and the, and the Sunday when, when things started to change. So, on the 12th, we, um, uh, we started off... It was a completely surreal day because... So I, uh, I sent a message to the Prime Minister at 7.48 that morning. Um, uh, and forgive, my, forgive the language that, that, that um, this is expressed in, but I, suppose I might as well just say what I actually said. We've got big problems coming. The Cabinet Office is terrifyingly shit. No plans, totally behind the pace. We must announce today, not next week. If you feel ill with cold or flu, stay home. Some around the system want to delay. Great news. Dawn Butler MP managed to make it hot foot from Westminster and on way out to the theatre, I hope. Uh, you look great. Um, what was it like? You were at the front seat of, for me anyway, I don't know your parliamentary experience, was one of the most kind of momentous days in terms of the volume of evidence we got presented by Dominic Cummings, former top advisor to Boris Johnson. What, was, what did you feel like being there? Well, I mean, nobody's ever given sort of a seven-hour evidence session to committee before and he was quite comfortable he would have gone all night if hmm. needed be so um i mean i think he um i mean he's he's quite narcissistic isn't he i mean he like he likes 
he he likes himself. It's quite it's quite interesting. In the beginning, he was very humble, mm. um, and that's coming from somebody who talks a lot about um, science. Um, and genomics and things like that. So for somebody that talks a lot about that, he, he's opened up by saying he wasn't very bright, yeah. which I found quite interesting because mm. I thought his whole pretense before was to, was to prove to everybody how bright he was. You kept on saying that, like at the end, you know, I'm not the smartest person in the job. Thousands of people could have done this job better yeah. than I could. And he just wanted to bring people in with his weirdos and misfits. Yeah. Did I, you I'm believe so that? I didn't, I didn't understand it, so I, I just didn't understand it. I didn't understand where he was coming from on mm. that, because actually when he gave evidence before, he was very much, I knew what I was doing, I'm very much in control. I mean, I found him, he is very fascinating, you know, in some ways quite mesmerizing. You're kind of, you know, you're listening to him and you're kind of wondering, what is, what is, he, mm. what is he saying, what does he mean, and what, what, what's underneath all of that? Um, I don't think he liked my questions very No, that much. was very specific <laughs> about data and the app and permissions, yeah. and you came up with this very good point. It says they can de-anonymize anonymize your data. Exactly. And, and he should know as a tech guru, shouldn't he? There's no such thing as anonymization of data because you could very easy to de-anonymize. Yeah. And when you've got like companies um, such as Faculty and uh, Palantir that has so much information, you know, of course they can cross-reference all of this information. So I wasn't buying the answers around that. I think there's a lot more digging to be done mm. on that because the people that he brought in, I think, is it Ben Wallace? Ben, and Mark, um, ben Warner. Ben Warner. And Mark Warner, who ran, it was called something else during the uh, Vote Leave referendum. Their, their Cambridge that's, Analytica. That's right. Now killed AI battle. Faculty has right. seven contracts with government. 23 million pound contracts and they're all very interconnected mm. and as you say they've got links to um, Cambridge Analytica who nobody trusts and they're, they're untrustworthy and so I think Amnesty, Amnesty are taking on this case and right. they're, they're um, and I, I did quote what they've written to, to Dominic Cunnings he was saying that you know he wasn't sure if he believed it but and the stuff also around the app I think it's I mean for some people they find it very boring right I was talking to my office about your data and all that, and they find it very boring. They're like, oh, well, everybody's got my data. Well, they haven't got all of your data. You know, there's something about somebody having your name, address, your date of birth, where you live, and all of your health records. But he you also made- nothing, nothing then is sacred to you. Well, there's this thing we've been running about Byline Times, that you have to opt out of sharing GP records yeah. by 21st of June, That's people right. may want to do that. But obviously the other thing is, just on this slightly technical geeky bit, let me <laughs> indulge myself, Hardeep, is it's not just the data, it's the modeling done on the data, which That's is the right. valuable thing. That's and that right. gives a company a massive, That's as Cambridge right. Analytica kind of proved, that's right. A massive commercial advantage. And they're but, way ahead in the US. Yeah. And this modeling is about not just modeling what you're doing, but what they think you're going to do. Yeah. And then how they can persuade you to do something else. You know, how they can direct you to do something else, how they can influence you to do something else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your whole life will essentially be controlled through this modeling. And if you remember, Cummins says something like, um, you know, it was the, the, the psychologist that won Brexit. You know, so they, they crunched all the data, analysed everything, and then decided how to sell a particular angle or story to different people. So or lie to different people, well, different sort of ads. You might say lie. Well, Turkey joining lies, the EU, yeah, yeah. and then suddenly they're for animal rights. Yeah. Just on a why, just stepping back on a human level, just before Hadi so takes over. Um, I felt he was moved. 
I mean, I, I felt catching the voice. I think he, am I wrong? I mean, it's different being there in person. But when he talked about the hundreds of, well, tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths, and we know he got quite ill. I do believe him, by the way, that he was quite ill. I mean, mm -hmm. whatever you think about Cummings. Um, do you think he meant that? I felt he does feel a kind of moral responsibility about those deaths. Well, the way he opened up in the beginning, I felt that it was um, a, a, almost a genuine apology. And then I wondered if this was a way of him kind of um, confessing. Do you know what I mean? I wondered, yeah. did he come to confess? Yeah. Did he come to say, look, I was a part of this. I was a part of this group thinking. I got carried away. I never, you know, all of the science books that I read, I never thought I'd get caught up into this group thinking and be part of that herd, mm. but I was. And so I've come to confess, this is what happened to me. So I wondered if that was a part of it. And do you think it was? Um, I still don't know. I mean, I was still like seven hours. Long time. <laughs> um, so I still haven't figured out. Um, I still haven't figured out the nub of what it was all about, to be fair. Harib has a very particular, especially with your family experiences recently in India, haven't you? The feeling about this. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt very sad actually listening to the, the testimony, just in terms of all the incompetence he seemed mm. to be, um, you know, exposing. And I think, yeah, it's quite frightening, actually, the, the levels of it is going on. But in terms of what he said, I mean, did you think that what parts of the testimony did you think were actually really helpful in shedding some light? And which parts did you think that maybe he was still a bit evasive? I think he transported us into the chaos of number 10, most definitely, I think. Mm. You know, the stuff about the dog tag and, you know, uh, Johnson's girlfriend going mad. He obviously, mm. you know, she doesn't like him, he doesn't like her. That very much came across. Um, so I think he bought, he, you know, he definitely transported us there. And you could, you could imagine Johnson saying, well, we need to have chaos because when there's chaos, people will look to me as a prime minister mm. to come to the, uh, with the solutions. You can imagine that, you know, that is something that he would say. Yeah. And actually that's a lot of stuff that, you know, lots of people in power say, you know, they're very much filled with that kind of um, self-importance. So, so he definitely transported us into that time. He definitely, I mean, uh, you know, when he, the picture of the whiteboard that he'd written on. Yeah. I mean, the fact is, like, where did he get it from? Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it hadn't been mm. used for years. You know, he dragged that into <laughs> number 10 to do all the drawings and the kind. Mm. You can, I did feel, actually, I felt that he felt that he was in charge of the whole thing. I did feel yeah. that. I felt that he felt that he had to use his, you know, his iPhone, as he kept saying, mm. you know, to to make the calculations and times it by two because nobody else was doing it. So I did feel as though he felt he had to do the whole thing. And this is why it was interesting to ask him what his job was. So, mm. you know, his job, he said previously when he came to the Science and Tech Committee was to get Brexit done, right? Yeah. So he got Brexit done. Boris has got this huge majority. They, they he would have thought that he'd be lounging around, controlling things, mm you know, walking through the corridors of power, whatever. And then we've got this pandemic and all of a sudden it's a whole different gear that you need to get yeah. into. And so I thought to myself, so, you know, 
what did you how did you prepare between yeah. that time and that time? So, I mean, he's still pretty contradictory, wasn't he? Yeah. In terms of at once he was saying, well, my official role was assistant to the prime minister, yeah. and you know it's ridiculous that someone like me should even be in that position. Yeah. But then it, but like you say, then he, when he was actually saying, well. I f it finally dawned on me and Ben Warner, and then exactly. eventually we raised the alarm. It, I should have pressed the panic yeah, button earlier. Sort of, did yeah. you find that was characteristic of the testimony, that it was there were paradoxes in various yeah. areas, perhaps? I think complete paradoxes. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how you could almost say I had this imposter syndrome, I didn't really belong, I shouldn't be there, I wasn't bright enough too. I wheeled in a whiteboard and did all the calculations for them, <laughs> did it mean? And if only I'd asked them to bring all the reports all at one time on the table, mm. then I could have said this, and I wanted to press it. So he had the power to press the panic button. He held that power. He had the power to not go to COBRA meetings, mm. but to employ a couple of other people to go to COBRA meetings in his place. That's a lot of power for somebody who comes to not be that bright or shouldn't mm. be in that position. But in a chaotic situation, so this is about other, yeah. we'll probably deal with this a bit later with Sam when he comes on, but I thought there was a, a big contradiction about what he's saying about the civil service, because the main aim, wasn't it, to say was, well, I'm coming forward because if there's another pandemic, the system is not for purpose. Mm. People are promoted in the civil service, not competent. But then what he was describing, describing was not chaos in the civil service, but chaos at the higher levels of government. That's right. What did you think about the particular targeting? I mean, he really, he went for Hancock and then Johnson mm -hmm. and very much protect, protected the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, mm -hmm. Dominic Raab, who stepped in as Prime Minister, and Michael Gove as head of the Cabinet, mm -hmm. in charge of the procurement, the Surprise, PPs. surprise. The ones that will probably be there in a few years' time while the others are coming out, but yeah. But he, but he says he doesn't want to go back to government. Do we believe that? Do you believe that? Um, well, I think when you've had that much power without the accountability, it's very difficult to let that go and turn your back on it. So right. I think I think that's very difficult. I think that, um, I mean, he, he's right. The, the civil service is very clunky, um, but there are actually very smart people in the civil service who have been there throughout the test of time. So they've been there while ministers come and go, yeah. and you've got civil servants that stay there throughout the test of time. And if you go in and you buckhead with, with those civil servants, you know, they can elevate you and they can bury you. You know, mm. they cannot give you information. They wouldn't necessarily give you the wrong information, but they cannot give you information. So, um, and remember, civil servants, senior civil servants, experienced civil servants were leaving in their droves. Yeah, Come Brexit, every week we had a senior civil servant leaving because of what was going on in government, because of the lies, because of the untruths, because of how they were being treated, they were leaving. So we lost a lot of senior civil servants. And so, you know, it was quite obvious that, you know, Dominic wanted to bring his own mates in. Well, the massive hiring plan, wasn't mm, there? Yeah. They were like sacked, they, and they had the Weirdos and Misfits mm. advert. Mm. But on his blog on and his not, blog. On the, not through the and official to channels. A, to a Gmail address. Mm. So I just stepping back then, what, I mean, what are you hearing you know, among your colleagues? What, what, does, what are people saying in Westminster about it? Do you think this is kind of closed down or this has exposed something which will eventually damage? Hancock first and then Johnson. Well, the dilemma is this, isn't there? If Boris Johnson, let's remember to stop just calling him Boris, if, uh, if Johnson was to sack Matt Hancock, then he'll be saying, well, Cummings was right, right? 
<laughs> can he afford to say that? Very clever. Yeah. I don't think he can. So he said something very interesting, which I don't know what he meant, but he said there's no good reason he wasn't sacked, mm. like implying there's a bad reason he wasn't sacked. That well, that he was there. I think there was a quote, wasn't there, that Cummings said that keep him in position because as soon as the inquiry comes, he'll be the one to sack. I think yeah, that yeah. Was Who was that? And I can I can believe that. Mm. I can believe that. And remember. This is the bad thing about a political system, mm. is that prime ministers do not necessarily put people in post who know what they're doing. Do you know what I mean? They wouldn't put somebody who loves transport in charge of transport or education in, in charge of education. They like to put somebody in who's not good at their job so that they're easier to uh, manipulate, quite frankly. So that's hey, a he, problem with our with He our made that system. point, I mean, quite a, a fierce point, yeah, about also, also about leadership of the parties, didn't he? Mm. He said... Like 2011, the system was created by Boris Johnson. He was quite derogatory about mm -hmm. Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so that begs that wider question: Do you think that actually this might lead to some reform in the party system, the civil service, whatever? That incompetence isn't promoted. And do you think, say, you in government now, or hopefully in government yeah. soon, uh, you would look at that in a way that Cummings' testimony might be quite useful? Well, I don't know if in the civil servants incompetence is promoted. I don't know if that's true. I do know that there are people who should be promoted that have not been promoted. It's, but it's very much uh, like all organisations. It's, it's very often sort of cliquey at the very top. Um, uh, I think political parties will continue to be political parties. I think, I don't think that will change that much. But I do think that there is value in ensuring that people know about their brief before they're given that job. I mean, the stuff that he said around Matt Hancock and his 100,000 target, mm. for instance, completely believable because so much of what was happening and we were taking evidence from the Science and Technology Committee didn't make sense. It was like, hang on a minute, this doesn't make sense. So why are you including that figure and not that figure? And, and how mm. comes you're double counting with the two tests and the one test? You know, it was all just so that he can fulfill his target. So everything stopped and was squeezed into making him reach that target. So all of that that Cummings said was completely, I think, believable. But I think he also, Cummings did, like, you know, he did five hours where you're like, oh, yes, that could be, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he said, I drove 30 miles to test my eyesight. Mm. And he still stuck with that. And you think, yeah. oh, God, we've just wasted five hours listening to you. He did, do you, yeah. Do you, I'm, yeah, I'm going to be out, go out on a limb. I think he was so frenetic and whatever, whatever, you know, he did say, let's see if I can drive. But anyway, that's beside yeah, you the way. You, you, let's see if I can drive. With the baby. With the baby the and my wife but in if the you car, can't drive, I am testing my eyesight. But if you can't drive, you need to sit mm. with you, you can't leave the baby but behind. But you leave the baby with these parents ah, that's there, true. Good wouldn't point. they? That's the whole reason yeah. why you move there, so there'll be someone to look after, mm. you know, his child, to so leave the child with the parents and go on your dangerous drive with two adults. He did say that the most garden, didn't he, Hardy? was the most catastrophic mistake, that press conference, which you covered yeah, brilliantly. I mean, yes, it was a disaster, but it was still curious as to if there were these national security concerns as to mm. why his family had to move, mm. and he had permission to do that from officials. Still perplexing as to why he couldn't just say that mm. to exactly. the public. Um, because I believe him that he did have security yeah. concerns. You know, it's really hard when you're, you know, in the public mm. eye. So I believe him that he did have security concerns. What was the whole theatre about? About, yeah. yeah. He yeah. loved it.
I mean, he loved, he loved having that little desk. In the Rose Garden. The last person to be there was the coalition, wasn't it? Yeah. When you had, you know, I think, I think he probably thought he was, at that stage, actually, now thinking about it, taking in his evidence today, he probably thought he was, in some twisted way, he probably thought he was prime minister. Do you know what mm. I mean? That level of power that he's yeah. been given in his own his yeah. own press conference. One important point that I think he made, though, actually was about the COVID public inquiry, which has been mm -hmm. set, hasn't it, for next spring. And he was quite clear that this is too late, too late for an inquiry to be held because lessons need to be learned now. And he was giving the Indian variant and the spread of it mm. uh, as another example of how this current government still hasn't learned any lessons. And I thought, I thought that was a really important point. And Dawn, what, what is happening in terms of in Parliament and from the perspective of different political parties and sort of being part of that conversation as to how, what the terms of references are for that inquiry, who's going to be involved. I mean, is that high up the sort of priority list of parliamentarians currently? And is there an ability to sort of shape that process with the government? Or do you think they're just going to be very trying sort of shape it in the way they want? Yeah, the government's going to try and avoid any form of meaningful inquiry because They've got form. That's what they do. Mm. But it's it's vital that there is a independent inquiry. I mean, the Science and Technology Committee and the Health Committee will do a lessons learned um, report, and that will have lots of things that you know we need to mm. learn are coming out of the, well coming out of this, but we're still in it. But I think again, I think that's a very valid point in terms of we are still in uh, a pandemic mm. and the government are still making mistakes. Still, all this time down the road, they're still making mistakes. And you just think, well, is this now deliberate? Are these mistakes deliberate? That was one of his suggestions, wasn't it? That now he thinks, you know, God knows what's going on now, he said, mm -hmm. and that herd immunity is still a strategy. Dawn, I'm conscious you have to go. So do come back maybe, especially if evidence is released, isn't it? Hopefully, Yeah, to we'll the... hopefully get to see all his evidence mm. that he's promised to, well, the evidence that he wants to give us. Well, in uh, discussion, he but, says. Uh, so. He was very uh, secretive about his WhatsApp messages to was. journalists. Yes, so he was. Surprise, surprise. Laura, surprise, surprise. I bet you guys were shocked. Very shocked. But also, <laughs> um, he promised openness, but... Only in certain elements. I certainly can't be too open, Peter. You know, you can't be too transparent. Only, yeah, and that's a problem, right? I mean, he sort of tied himself up in knots mm. on that on that bit. And I think he he came, you know, prepared with a with his own script. I wonder if he fulfilled what he wanted. I don't know. Well, I'm sure you'll tell us if he hasn't, <laughs> and we'll see the evidence. Thank you so much, Dawn, for coming on. Uh, now we'll see some more clips of what Dominic Cummings said in Parliament today and then we'll be joined by Sam Bright who will dissect it with me, myself and Hardeep in great detail. Getting worse um, and that kind of propelled things a bit towards lockdown but it's also the case that, um, the, the, that uh, you know, fundamentally the Prime Minister just never didn't really think that this was the big danger. Now, there have been lots of reports and accusations that the Chancellor was the person who was kind of trying to delay, th delay things in, in March. That is completely, completely wrong. The Chancellor was totally supportive of me uh, and of, um, of other people as we tried to make this transition from, from plan A to plan B. 
he got his team working on the, on the, on the furlough scheme. But it is the case that there were senior officials who, who, who worried that... Um, the, you know, it's not completely unreasonable either to, th to, 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 say, to say, if you completely shut down the economy, you are definitely having huge, terrible effects on all sorts of people's lives. If you have a lockdown, you are definitely consigning some people to all kinds of suffering in various ways, and some of them might die because of the lockdown itself. So I think you know, there were reasonable arguments. You know, it's, it's not like just having a lockdown was the obvious thing. To do, there were reasonable arguments to say we've got to kind of weigh up the, all the other destructive effects of what to do. Now, me and others came to the conclusion that actually the logic was fundamentally false because what we what what we based what we ended up arguing was, in fact, if you try not to lock down and you try to uh, you try and optimise for the short-term economy, you won't actually even get that because what will happen is the public will lock themselves down because they'll realise that there isn't going to be any, any NHS for anybody. That was the reality, and I think this point is even now is constantly lost. In the scenario that we were heading for, not only would you have had hundreds of thousands of deaths from COVID, you would then have had absolutely no NHS at all for anybody. Your seven-year-old daughter falls over and needs A&E, there is no A&E for her. You got cancer treatment, there is no cancer treatment. Nothing, nothing at all for anybody for three months. That's what we were facing. And part of our argument was, once people realise that that's the situation that we're heading for, they will be so terrified, they'll stay at home anyway. There's going to be, a lock, there's going to be some kind of lockdown, whatever happens. Either we get ahead of this and we try and do it as intelligently and sensibly as we possibly can, or if we plough into this process... Well, at Byline Times and Byline TV, we like to be what the papers don't say and what the TV doesn't tell you. So you've seen some of those clips. You can find many more of those clips on our Byline TV feed and, of course, throughout the media. But here we're going to just dig a bit deeper now, I think, with Hardeep and Sam and look at what wasn't said and what are the implications of this. So let's start in a sort of time sequence. Um, I'm not going to big myself up, but as one of the first to notice on March the 12th about the herd immunity anathema, something which has never happened in the absence of a vaccine for 50 years, uh, or never a public policy. And I thought, I don't know how you felt, uh, Hardeep and Sam, but it was a bit contradictory on herd immunity. He says he didn't have the famous domicine conversion described by the Sunday Times around uh, mid-March. He didn't exactly explain what happened. And all I can see is when herd immunity was mentioned on the 12th, 13th and 14th by Peston's blog, who apparently spoke to Hancock, it seemed, and the science advisor, Valance, Halpern and people like that. But the cat got out of the bag. I remember Twitter at the time. The cat got out of the bag. What are you talking about? This isn't like flu. The health service will be overwhelmed. To get to 60% infections, if the health service is overwhelmed, you're talking about you know, millions of deaths. Now, their graph said half a million deaths. Yeah. So do you think Dominic Cummings was kind of following herd immunity until the 12th, until it got cat gun out of the bag? I think he was probably, he, he claims that he was sort of bounced along the trajectory of Whitehall and he didn't pay it that much attention. 
the thing was that he explained in great detail why the Prime Minister was distracted. <laughs> you know, his mm. book and, you know, Carrie decorating engagements. And, and engagements and Baby. his divorce. But yeah, lots of things actually. Should he actually be Prime Minister, Peter? <laughs> um, but he didn't explain, Dominic didn't explain why he was or wasn't distracted during that period, what else he was focusing on. He mentioned PPE procurement that he, he was focusing on. He was that, interested in the procurement system in general, I yeah. think he said in January, but not specifically on our big subject, PPE. But if, you, if you're told or if you see evidence when you're the chief aide to the Prime Minister that suggests mm. that hundreds of thousands of people might die, at the outset of this, mm. when that is not an ordinary occurrence, we've got to remember mm. that yeah. thousands of people dying every day now mm. is just what happens, unfortunately. But then, mm. if you see evidence that there's a pandemic on the way, I don't know about you, but I would give it great attention. Half so, a million, like all the war dead, you know, mm. from two world wars. Yeah, it would suggest to me that he perhaps did, you know, just go along with he it. He did go along with it, yeah. Because he talked about that meeting with the whiteboard, didn't he? I think, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have a slightly different take on it mm. in that I thought a really interesting moment in the testimony was where he was saying that all the official guidance was that the plan A was herd immunity. So it was people in government, the Department of Health and SAGE were all saying, mm. this is what we need to do. We need to have one big peak. Yeah. And by that time, immunity will start by you know spreading and then that will avoid a second peak and sort of just get through it mm. and have you know start gathering immunity and he was saying that that moment when i think he was with ben warner. Ben, ben warner and they sort of looked at it again well, look and at then, itu rates a, coming and in people sort in of that was that the alarm bell started ringing mm. i think dominic cummings did say to the committee that actually in that moment it was a big thing to go and say to the Prime Minister, and not, not defending him, but mm. it was a big thing when all the officials around you, including people who are, you know, scientists and, and health experts, and again, we, maybe there's a question about which sorts of people they were, mm. but if they're all saying this is plan A, I think he did make well, that point that, that yeah. it's a big thing for me to go to the Prime Minister and say, actually, this is completely catastrophic because what if I'm wrong? Mm. And again, I'm not saying, I'm not defending him, but it's really interesting that what he describes as being in a situation mm. where everybody was sort of convinced that that was the case. And also this, this notion, which is really interesting about behavioral scientists saying the British public, they'll never do the social distancing. They'll not do the lockdowns. We're not that kind of mm. country. So this is all feeding in. Yeah. And then against that, and you know, I'm glad he spoke up eventually, but whether he could have done that sooner is a different question. But I guess the context, I mean, I was surprised by the extent to which officials yeah. who were qualified yeah. in these fields were saying herd immunity. Yeah. Well, the institution yeah. almost, and yeah. just to explain to the audience if it's not quite clear, there was sort of the plan A and B was both a form of herd immunity. One was let it really rip mm. and, and have no restrictions or social distancing. Uh, and that'd be half a million dead and 250 dead. But then potentially a worse second wave, mm. which would lead more dead. Uh, I think two of these points just may be worth focusing on, which giving some credence here. One thing is obviously they only just got the information from Lombardy of what was happening with death rates in Italy when the health service was overwhelmed. So they were going for a case fatality rate of like 0.6%. It went up to 7% and that. Mm. And the other one was, I thought it was quite astute of him to say, I don't know when he realised this, 
that once that started happening, you'd get a lockdown anyway, because even without government saying it, the people would lock yeah. themselves down. That was interesting. I thought it was interesting as well, on your point, Hardeep, about what it said about the fundamental nature of our government mm. system when he was talking about the uh, autumn wave of the virus he said that the prime minister essentially acted unilaterally yeah. mm. that there was no cabinet that cabinet basically didn't exist throughout this period and it was himself patrick valance chris witty matt hancock in a room and whatever the prime minister said goes i mean it sort of takes a and he disagreed with them he disagreed with matt hancock well, and witty and valance well, and when it did his own thing boris johnson did yeah mm. exactly it sort of takes a bulldozer to this notion of government by cabinet yeah. it was it, we have reached that level and people chide us for saying for comparing it to sort of authoritarianism sort of neo-authoritarianism like no yeah. no no that hasn't happened what Cummings was describing is essentially Boris Johnson being able to do what he wants based mm. on reading a column in the Daily Telegraph that will then potentially kill people yeah. if there's if that's not sinister I'm not quite sure what is what do you think mm. about that idea well, that's a shock that was a shock to me that really the checks and balances whole system of governance that first wave there seemed to be a little bit more but then all this fighting I mean let's just go let's hold back going through the second wave let's just go for that middle bit in the summer mm. where basically let's look at test you know the testing issue with Matt Hancock now he laid into Matt Hancock he said what it's every day every week virtually every day I was asking him for to resign and Matt Hancock was going for this hundred thousand mm. uh, tests a day wasn't he what did you make of that? That seemed to me like just divide and rule, kind of like rats mm. in a sack. I, I just think that the whole situation, as Dawn Butler was saying, yeah. it was complete chaos. And that, what did Dominic Cummings say? That Boris Johnson seemed, he liked the chaos. It's yeah. the whole chaotic nature of his government is that things are all over the place and these last minute decisions are made and it's all against up against wire. His, his career has been like that. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think... It's interesting that Hancock came in for so much criticism and Boris Johnson. I mean, they were the two, really, weren't they? And I think the levels of incompetence of both were kind of outstanding. <laughs> what was really concerning was to hear coming say that after, well, as the first lockdown was underway, already Boris Johnson was saying, we should never have done that. I should have been like the mayor from the Jaws film and kept the mm. beaches open. And it's really ruined the economy. That, I mean, that is really concerning that even having started the lockdown. This is a position he came to quite immediately. And then Dominic Cummings was saying, you know, then we'd be back at square one where the prime minister would be saying, don't want these lockdowns. You know, it just, a lot of it, like you say, Sam, it seems to revolve a lot around the character of the mm. prime minister yeah. and sort of what he might want. And then the ministers sort of give him bits. And it it's like Trump, you know, it's very He sounded just yeah, like Trump. I kept on thinking of that. And we, we know that Trump spent most of his time looking at Fox News, <laughs> you know, going, and then, you know, Fox News would basically broadcast and change policy. Cause they, and it seems like Boris Johnson spent, they, I think Cummings described number 10's function as basically a press answering service. He'd wake up in the morning, read the Sunday Telegraph mm. or the Telegraph, his old employers, and then respond to that. Yeah. It, it was just like a sort of an, an upper-class version <laughs> of Donald Trump. Am I being unfair? And also the short-term memory lapse. I mean, it's like Trump, he seems to sort of bear the impression of the last person who sat on him. Yeah, mm. I think he described it as Boris Johnson wakes up, reads the newspapers and cannons around, which thought was a very good description given his sort of... We you know, laugh, his really. yeah. um, But I think there's an interesting point on Hancock in general and what Dawn was saying, that obviously... <laughs> incompetence is promoted within the political system because you want people who can serve you 
not necessarily serve the country. So mm. that's why we don't have experts in position. And that's clearly why we're in such a mess. I think there's a layer back that's also a fundamental problem that goes back to the political parties that mm. Dawn probably won't like to admit, in that you become a candidate in the first place mm -hmm. because you're a servant to a party yeah. and not because of your aptitude and mm. quality and talent. And that, that's kind of the, the walled garden that Cummings was describing in mm. relation to the civil service as well, that mm. you get you get sort of funneled through the through the fast stream of the civil service when you've just graduated mm. and then you stay in the system forever and no one else can yeah. break in and there's sort mm. of a sort of a, an immunity really to talent within the civil service. And I think it's the same within the higher reaches of government mm. and within the political parties generally. So I think it's got to come from from them. Um, so, the, the, so there's an uh, uh, immunity to talent and an aversion to risk. That yep. seemed to be nobody wanted to make the bad decision. So Heidi, you write brilliantly about sort of the state of the nation as sort of post-imperial. Mm. Did that open your eyes more to, beyond the Johnson, the characters involved, uh, some profound dysfunction in, in the British state? Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, I, f I was actually really sad and mm. quite frightened watching that testimony because just to hear that level of incompetence and to hear Dominic Cummings say tens of thousands of people died when they didn't have to, that's like tens of thousands of families whose lives will never be the same again, yeah. ever. Yeah. And just the way he described it, like if there was this was incompetent and there's no infrastructure, the reason the lockdown couldn't be introduced to begin with, because there was no plan, there was no test and trace, there was no PPE in place, we had no idea what contract tracing was, we didn't want to shut the borders. There was incompetence across the board. Mm. And when I was watching that, it was, you know, obviously I have my specific interests, but when I was watching that, I almost thought we could have gone back in time and Cummings could have been giving evidence at an inquiry into the partition of India wow. or, or something like that because it was this same level of you know scandal incompetence and sheer arrogance to be honest that has cost people's lives and I think it's really interesting that in my other analysis I've often said that Boris Johnson is, a, is taking Britain back with Brexit to this neo-imperial idea. And so he's like a neo-imperial prime minister. But what he's also bringing back with him, which I don't think we saw under New Labour, which there was competence there, even if mistakes were made. What we're seeing with Johnson is we're returning to this neo-imperial state where you have a ruling class mm -hmm. who just smacks of arrogance, incompet incompetence and power. And that is corrupting. Mm -hmm. And so it, just to hear the fact that we have a prime minister who's saying, oh, why are we having these lockdowns? I should have been the mayor in Jaws. Tens of thousands of families yeah, will funny. never be the same again. And yeah. I just, for me, this is at the very heart of what yeah. Britain w always was and really is. But I think it's that Johnson administration that has sort of turned the clock back mm -hmm. and is fostering the environment in which these levels of incompetence and downright corruption are sort of flourishing. Well, there's no checks, is there? This Dominic Cummings mm. is our accountability. Just turning to the issue, you know, which we've covered a lot, PPE, we didn't really get much. This is, by the way, people haven't followed Barnard Times reports of this, particularly led by Sam, you know, we've exposed one billion of crony contracts to Tory donors, another two billion to Tory friends. <coughs> but for somebody who cared about procurement, Dominic Cummings didn't seem to have much oversight of it. And that just speaks again to the, the chaos in which, I suppose, 
in that incompetence, self-interest can thrive. Is that what you took out of it? Yeah, I, it, was a, it was one of the greatest paradoxes, I thought, because on the one hand, he was like, oh, we should be nimble, we should be able to recruit these small firms to recruit, to, to buy PPE really quickly, and all the rules should be thrown out the window. And he actually said that in his ideal scenario, he would have recruited a dictator who yeah. would have pushed the boundaries of legality. Yes. Yeah, that was terrifying. <laughs> so he said that on the one yeah. hand, and yet on the other, there seemed to be this slight concern or at least he was pandering to the person who was asking the question to be like oh yeah no it was raised and oh, oh it was Matt Hancock's fault that it was nothing to do with me so I think he was trying to play both kind of teams on that really. what it what it really reminds me about this is about personal bet noir of mine is the techno libertarians like mm. they're all about oh open data you should have opened up the data but obviously not my whatsapp messages to journalists mm. and then but we need a dictator it's like there's complete openness and chaos and then a dictator. How does one recruit for a dictator, do you think? <laughs> I don't know. Just get, put Cummins in charge. I yeah. have no idea. Drive to Barnard Castle. Yeah. I mean, that's the way to do it. Um, I mean, let's not go back to the Barnard Castle thing because I think, I think people are wondering if we want to talk about this. Uh, maybe let's go to that at the end about whether we trust him and what his reputation is like mm. right now. But let's go just turn because we haven't got much longer. So that third phase, we had the summer and he stayed on board and there's the test tracing fiasco. And then, then, of course, he had his own issue with the, you know, breaking lockdown and the Rose Garden speech. Then the crucial moment happens, doesn't it, again, in September, the t I've got the dates on my tweet, September 20th, 28th. And what is there is that the virus is back, it's rising. People have gone back to school, gone back to university. R is like 1.4 at that moment. And uh, Valance and Witty say you've got to shut down. Cummings say you've got to shut down. And then <laughs> Boris Johnson, and he kind of excluded Rishi Sunak from this meeting. I thought he was there too. Takes a meeting mm -hmm. with people we've written quite a lot about, either sort of Great Barrington declaration lot, like Sinatra Gupta, who believed what he had herd immunity, Hennigan, who thinks something similar, similar, and Anders Tegnell from Sweden, who's run there brilliantly, which was vaunted in the Telegraph throughout that summer. The Swedish policy, which is actually they were self-isolating, but turned out to be much worse than anything else. What did you make about that phase? Because that's obviously when he was losing it. And let's remind everybody, two-thirds of the deaths from coronavirus, those 150, 120,000 people, happened after this moment. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was it was shocking. Another thing that we've been sort of validated on, because we've written about this in the past, that sort of crucial meeting, I, I reflected on another piece that we did as well, which was um, the, a, a, a criticism of the Daily Mail by the government. So the Daily Mail had written an article when Witty and Valance had come out on TV and they said, we need a lockdown. And the Daily Mail had basically said, that's all tosh, you should listen to us, the cases are fine, there's no second wave. Whereas if you actually looked at the data uh, during that time, mm. cases were rising like exponentially at that point, which was obviously highlighted by the, the two most senior scientific and mm. medical advisors in the country. Mm. But Boris Johnson was reading the tabloids and was not paying attention to his own scientific advisors, which just seems ludicrous that we can have that deficit of well, government in this country. And it makes sense of the Boris Trump phenomenon if you're Rupert Murdoch or Fox News or you're all these lobbyists who for financial or personal reasons didn't want a second lockdown. You just target Boris Johnson through the pages of the Telegraph, through the pages of the Whale and the Sun, mm -hmm. all going, you know, let's not have another lockdown. Mm -hmm. the, what, sorry, just to add a piece, I didn't, I didn't finish the story about the piece, which is mm. 
the government criticised the Daily Mail publicly about this and said, yeah. what you're saying is wrong, it's fake news. And the Daily Mail, as we found out through FOI requests, called up the government and forced them yeah. to delete the criticism. It was a tweet, wasn't it? It was reply. a reply. Yeah, it was a, it was a reply to the Daily Mail from the government account to the Daily Mail saying, this is wrong. The Daily Mail called up the government and said, take that down now. And the government did it. That's the power that the... And then there was the, another article from the Daily Mail, Ram, wasn't there, about how they'd removed the tweet. Yeah. Yeah, well, they, they, they said, was yeah. it for... Yeah, it was like, so, so it wasn't it, it yeah. yeah. They were they boasting, about. They were boasting about it. Yeah, yeah they were boasting I mean, about it. And the government didn't shocking. say anything it's in response. Shocking. So was that from the Department of Health and Social Care? Mm. Or, yeah. Right. Yeah. So that makes me... Well, I must admit, when they were targeting Hancock all through the summer, I thought it was because he was more health orientated and lockdown oriented. And maybe there's a little bit of that going on, I don't know. Um, so that image, do you actually have that image too, Hardeep, that there's Boris Johnson, former journalist, sacked for lying from the Times, uh, Telegraph columnist, editor of The Spectator. He is just caring about the public image. And, not, and, and every morning he is, you can manipulate him if you're a tabloid or broadsheet editor with this disinformation. Mm, yeah, I, I do think that. And I think the reason that's the case is because Boris Johnson is exactly the worst prime minister ha to have at the worst time because he's not someone, this is, this is literally his worst nightmare. This, he's not mm. someone who is into details yeah. and com you know, being competent and being <laughs> over your brain. He's just not, his one facet, the main reason he's in power is because he is seen as the revolutionary leader of the Brexit campaign, and a lot of that is based on his own personality. It is all about the optics around what type of leader he can be perceived to be. Yeah. That is, I honestly think, that's what it comes down to. I think the party knows yeah. that it hangs on his personality, and I think that's why the media is actually so critical to him, because it's not only about, you know, covering the government in a favourable light. It's on a personal level, his, he, that is his channel to present the public image that seems mm. to win him votes. Mm. And so it is shocking to see. I mean, we're not shocked by it, but it is shocking. It should be shocking that mm. there's that level of influence that he picks up the papers first thing. And, but that's not surprising. And that's, it's for the same reason that there's been such levels of competence in this coronavirus crisis because he's just exactly the wrong type of leader and to give Dominic Cummings some sort of warped credit because you know I would question his statement but he said well you know the fact that Boris Johnson's the leader he's completely unfit and that's ridiculous that we've got to a position where he's a leader I would say to Cummings well you're the one who created the environment <laughs> in which this man flourished which is cannot be overlooked. Mm. But yeah, Cummings like it's ridiculous because this man, he's not interested in carrying out the day-to-day -day duties of a prime minister. It's yeah. about the image. Yeah. And as long as he can keep that on the road, he'll keep winning votes. Yeah. Which he has done. And so the media's crucial. The media's yeah. crucial. It's government by perception, not government by reality. Mm. And uh, we should be careful of being critical of other journalists. They do a tough job. One of the things that revealed to me, you know, especially the secrecy over it, well, I'll give you all the evidence, but not my WhatsApp messages to, mm. you know, senior journalists. And I've, he singled out Laura Kunzberg. That's not, you know, uh, he said he spoke to her. That is her job. Let's be fair to her. Uh, and there's others he obviously spoken to. That this secrecy around the lobby briefing mm. and senior journalists. I, I remember that moment of that herd immunity on the 12th, and then we're all kicking off about it on Twitter. And a lot of scientists got in. Now, that 500 scientists wrote that weekend to government saying, mm. don't go for herd immunity yeah. with this virus without a vaccine. 
and, and then being then being roundly mocked by the lobby. Oh, some of these people are only PhDs. So not only does he capture by the media, has he also captured the media thanks to his charm, thanks to the access he gives them? Yes, I think, and I think it's right not to focus on individuals because I think it is a system problem mm. in how the lobby is constructed. Mm. Um, and you know, for for um, anybody who doesn't know, the lobby uh, journalists are those who have access to the houses of parliament, so can hobnob with MPs in the bar in the evenings. Um, but essentially the job that they do is repeating things that politicians say. They don't investigate or scrutinise or criticise. And so what Peston did was essentially say, you're going to be hearing a lot more. I think that was yeah, the exact word. You're going to be hearing a lot mm. more about herd immunity. He didn't say, oh, <laughs> no, this sounds awful. A quarter <laughs> of a million people are going to die. Well, when's this last happened, herd immunity? If you look at the chart of trends, not mentioned no. since 2004 mm. on Google. Yeah, yeah, suddenly it's but a I'm going to put it out there anyway because yeah. it makes me look like I'm sort of bosom buddies with Boris Johnson. And that's, a ba- that's just fundamentally a bad system to have in place mm. whereby you just have people repeating what's echoed around Westminster. We need to just abolish the lobby system and um, have it open to talent and have you know people who can properly investigate the truth. And proper press it. conferences like they yeah. now return to in the state. Hadi, mm. if you... So the, the sort of final thought is, and um, mm. I think we'll have slightly different opinions here, but it is a human thing. Uh, some people are asking already, I think, on our YouTube channel, thanks for signing up, all you three or four people already signed up, and do support our Patreon channel, because it's the only way we can afford to sit in these lovely chairs and have this show and talk to you every week on Friday night with Byline Times. But the question has been raised, I suppose it's an actual human one. Do you trust Dominic Cummings now? Mm. Has he redeemed himself? From, I'm going to ask Hardy, but you want time to think about it. Uh, you can't just put me on the spot. Oh, okay. Why don't you ask me a question? Put me on the spot. Well, what, what do you think? think what do you think? Peter? Yeah, don't put. Just, I, yeah. What do you just think, me Peter? Just ask a question myself. I don't know. I mean, I do find him a fascinating character. I do don't think he's interested in money. I do think he's interested in science and has some failings in understanding it, which he admitted to. I think he wants to be on the right side of history. He kind of pushed history with Brexit one way. He's kind of on the right side of it, if you want to look at it that way. Um, I think, and I remember, I'm not comparing him with Albert Speer, the famous Nazi um, uh, confessor in a way, who was uh, you know, senior as an architect in Hitler's regime, but he talked a lot about what went wrong. But there's certain things he found very difficult to talk about in a great book with Gita Sereni. Uh, and I think there are just in that, you know, in, in language, when I studied English literature, we call this sort of these lacunae. I'm going to use some Latin like Boris would. These kind of gaps. And then these gaps, like Barnard Castle, like when he got over herd immunity, like over secrecy, like the certain people he praised and he didn't. Well, I still don't trust him. Mm. But I mm. think he wants to be on the side of good. I think he's generally was moved by those number of deaths. I think he felt personally, you know, the breath of death on his shoulder, and he has a young child. Okay, I've answered it, your turn. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think I do, um, I think I do find him quite credible, um, to be honest. Um, I think with Cummins, he likes to break, he likes to break things. It's also, I think, there's a massive amount of credit, there's a massive amount of bravery about coming out against your former 
in, in mm. employers and people who you work with closely, especially at the top of government. I, I can barely remember it. Yeah. People go into government and then they leave and like Theresa May, they get their speaking careers and they, especially in the civil service and special advisors, they don't come back to haunt their past masters. And this is the first time that he's done it. I mean, I can't imagine leaving if I disagreed with your premiership, Peter. I can't imagine <laughs> leaving and then holding you know. seven hours of testimony about my. Well, you know, generally people yeah. just do yeah. naturally, and I think, I think as a result, that's I think he deserves some credit for that. I think as well, though, there is a political dynamic to this, which is he knows that if he, did, if he didn't get in now, he was going to be the one the who he was going to be the four guy during the inquiry. Mm. It's always it's best for him in terms of his image, um, and potentially his livelihood and his freedom, and not you know being stuck in jail by this Boris Johnson administration, which I don't think that's beyond them. And mm. um, to present his evidence first, so he does have a serious motive there, really, mm. as well. Adi, can you give us a conclusion yeah, about today? Yeah, I mean, as my readers of my work will know, I always like to bring a little philosophy to my journalism. So I always like to look at, almost zoom out in these moments, which can be very intense and interesting, and think, what, what are some of the bigger human aspects that are raised? And I agree with both of you um, that in that, you know, he's still that person who was heading up the Vote Leave campaign, still that person uh, who was sending out disinformation around the EU, around people of colour, around migrants. Still the person who told us about the eye, eye test last year. But sitting there today, yes, he was, he was, he was sort of just a, a human being saying his piece. And some aspects of it were very revealing and I think going to be helpful. Some, I agree, are still... Uh, kind of, you know, a bit suspect as to what he was really getting at, and some of it is very strategic. But what I sort of really took from it in the end was that both can be true, you know, this can be true, and this is true too. And I think in society and in sort of the journalism, we've sort of lost the ability uh, to, to look, to have the space to look at the things in that way. And I think for me, at the end of the day, him sitting there, was just like, wow, it challenges us to get to grips with the complexity of what it is to be uh, a person. And I think we should always take the opportunities to use those moments. Uh, yeah, it must have been a difficult thing to do, mm. but it's also been difficult for tens of thousands of people to lose people in that way. And I think, in a way, there, was, there were no real winners today mm. because of the subject matter that he was there for. And I think that just reveals, you know, things are so complex in life. There are no straightforward answers. And I thought it was interesting for that. Hardeep Matharu. And before that, you heard Peter Jukes, Sam Bright and Dawn Butler MP. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and you've been listening to a special edition of the Byline Times podcast featuring on-the-day reaction to Dominic Cummings' sustained parliamentary attack on his former government colleagues. You can watch more like this at byline.tv. And if you want to support its work and get additional content, you can go to patreon.com slash byline tv. That's patreon.com slash byline tv.
I'm Adrian Goldberg, and thanks for listening to the Byline Times podcast. Do check out our latest regular episode, which features an in-depth interview with Alistair Morgan about the unsolved murder of his brother, Daniel Morgan, 34 years ago. It's a story of police corruption, media interference, and now a delay caused by Home Secretary Priti Patel. See you next time. Listener.